Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. Whether you are transforming yourself, your team, your business, or your community, we'll connect you with insightful and challenging leaders who share their stories of successful transformations to give you practical ideas for your own journey. Join us for another insightful episode of Creating Synergy. So welcome to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco. I am your host. And today we have the beautiful Sharon Brower, who is the CEO of Mills on Wheels. So a little bit about a Mills on Wheels essay, I should say, a little bit about Sharon. Uh, Sharon is a highly experienced and strategic executive leader in the national non-for-profit food and health sector. Her current joint roles of CEO of Mills on Wheels in South Australia and Mills on Wheels Australia president, Sharon has the passion for improving the health and well-being of communities through the delivery of high-quality community service and programs. Sharon leads South Australia's largest community-based volunteer organisation and is responsible for 80 branches, 7,000 volunteers and 60 staff delivering 4,000 daily meals and supporting 11,000 people annually. In her national role with the iconic organisation, Sharon was instrumental in the development of Australian meal guidelines promoting improved nutrition, balance and healthy choice and influencing aged care reform to ensure communities can benefit from the services like Meals on Wheels well into the future. Personally, she was a former Telstra Businesswoman of the Year finalist and Sharon is leading the transformation of Meals on Wheels to expand its social impact through new service models and markets. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Daniel. So tell us a little bit, that for the listeners out there, I guess uh, not everyone would know Meals on Wheels. Mm. I know I do. I grew up with Meals on Wheels pretty much down the road from me. So, uh, But can you just give us a little bit of background about Meals on Wheels and what you guys do for the community? For sure. So Meals on Wheels has a vision of well-nourished people thriving in their communities. And we started in South Australia in the 1950s. And and we had a really um, inspirational founder, a woman by the name of Doris Taylor. She was a wheelchair user. She'd been um, living with a disability since her uh, late childhood. And she she really understood the connection between eating well and being well. And um, in fact, she had seen that people had um, been moving into institutions. So in South Australia, we had a a really awfully named place called the Home for the Incurables, which oh, wow. was um, what the Ju- Julia Fast Centre <laughs> was. That? It was in the 1940s yeah, and 1950s. Wow. They, they called it the Home for the Incurables. And she also went to Glenside um, Mental Hospital. And what the um, people there told her was that um, oftentimes uh, people who lived on their own weren't eating well. Um, they became unwell. They might have had depression or, or other sort of um, uh, c- considerations. And, um, and they moved into full-time care. And then once they started eating better, they actually improved, but they'd lost their home. They didn't actually have yeah. anywhere to move out to. And so they became institutionalised. And so she thought, oh, you know, surely we need to do better th- than that as mm. an organisation. So she, so she set about organising Meals on Wheels. So Meals on Wheels was a concept that came out of the UK during the Blitz. And um, people didn't have homes and kitchens to cook in. So the Women's Royal Volunteer Service got... Uh, some some vans and they fitted them out as mobile kitchens and they would drive around the bombed out areas and so the the term Meals on Wheels was coined 
and uh, and they continued on that um, service after the war years, supporting um, particularly older people um, to live at home. And uh, of course, this was before we had microwave ovens, and you know there yeah. wasn't a lot of frozen TV dinners or anything like that. Um, so this idea of Meals on Wheels just burgeoned around um, the Commonwealth and um, particularly the sort of Western um, European and, and um, North America in, in the 1950s. And Doris Taylor was the one who brought it to Australia and, and to South Australia in particular. So we sort of, we, we grew out of um, our first kitchen in Port Adelaide in, uh, in 1954, delivered eight meals to people. So the basic concept of Meals on Wheels is Hello. that we have um, a, a, a community of people who have difficulty shopping and cooking for themselves for a range of reasons. It could be age, disability, um, post-hospital, you know, they've, they've just become a bit run down and they need a bit of help for a little while. Yeah. Um, they might be living with a disability. They might be a carer. So there's a whole lot of reasons that um, might be uh, just a short-term need or a long-term need, but people can't cook and shop for themselves. And so what Meals on Wheels uh, does is we do that part for them. Yeah, we, 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 um, we create a, um, a three-course meal that meets all the nutritional targets, Perfect. particularly for older people. And um, most of our meals are prepared by volunteers and they're all delivered by volunteers. We've got 80 outlets around South Australia who, uh, who deliver that lovely meal, warm um, companionship and a smile and some um, support, check in on people, make sure that they're doing okay. We do that Monday to Friday, um, you know, every week of the year and, yeah. and uh, it makes a huge difference to the community. Such a purpose-led business, isn't it? It's yes. amazing. Yeah. How does, how does uh, someone who needs your service find out about Meals on Wheels or how do you, I guess, uh, get in touch with these people who do need it? Oh, it's, um, there's a, a range of different channels. Uh, a lot of people, it will be um, through word of mouth, um, through an, a knowledge of the organisation mm -hmm. um, in, in their local community. So mm -hmm. with 80 um, branches, that, you Spread know, it's way. down the street. You know, a lot of people drive past Correct. a Meals yeah. on Wheels. They kind of know who we are. Um, but for those who don't, we have... Um, we connect directly with our um, our market through website, uh, phone calls. Um, we do um, occasionally do some uh, TV campaigns or yeah. or other sort of publicity. Um, the there's a lot of uh, different government programs that subsidise the cost of the service for people, and it yeah. kind of depends on um, your your age group and your need as yeah. to you know which program might suit you. And um, the majority of people who use our service are. 80 plus um, year old people and so they uh, are eligible many of them for support through the uh, Commonwealth Home Support Program and so there is a sort of a pathway to that service through a government contact centre but what yeah. we find most people come and chat with us first yep. we'll work out whether we um, have a service that's going to meet their need and then we connect them with the government program that um, might assist them with the payment for the service. Brilliant. So it's like a subscription model. Is that how um, it works? It's it's very much a, a direct um, fee for service model. So okay. the um, so the consumers um, generally uh, will get uh, three or four meal deliveries a week. Some people will need as many as seven meals, yep. but not not everybody does. And uh, and so we sort of set up their services. They might have a, a swallowing difficulty yeah, or okay. particular dietary requirement. We make sure they're getting yeah, the right food for them. And then uh, the meals get delivered and it 
the end of uh, and on a fortnightly basis we uh, we do a, a, a charge um, in arrears to yeah. them. So the consumers currently pay oh, about th- two thirds of the cost, um, up to three quarters of the cost yeah. of the service, and then government yeah, funding and and fundraising income and other things kind yeah. of offset the the remainder of that. So recently, you've been uh, Mills and Wills has been in the news, I guess, about that government funding. There's been a big uh, spruce to the to the funding there, has there? Um, we we have had a campaign nationally um, to raise the uh, amount of funding to um, Mills and Wills services, and there's sort of a there's a range. It's an interesting pro- program. It it grew out of um, a program that was administered by the states, and so each jurisdiction kind of did their own thing. And then within jurisdictions, there didn't seem to be any great um, sense as to how um, one service might receive a certain um, price for a, a meal delivery service and another service might get a very different mm-hmm. price. It's, it was very opaque as to how yeah. all of that happened. Um, but what we do know is that Mills on Wheels services nationally tend to get paid at the lower end of the range. So that the national average is around um, 9 to $12 a, a meal and most Mills on Wheels services are getting funded at $4.85 if they deliver on all of the... Mm-hmm. Um, the outputs that their uh, grant agreement says yeah. that they should, and a few of them are falling short. So there's a little bit of uh, cribbing of, of yeah, some funding yeah. that way, um, but we're we're paid it right at the low end of the uh, of the range, and what that means is that the um, the extra cost has to be borne by the older person yeah. who's generally on a fixed income, quite financially vulnerable. Yeah, and probably what, already getting their money from the government. Yeah, and we know that um, that means people make, they make compromises. Yeah, so yeah. they might actually, you know, benefit from having five meals provided to them per week. And that's only five meals out of, you know, arguably 21 that you might yeah. be having um, in the week. Mm-hmm. Um Five meals a week is costing people more than ten percent of their pension if they're on the full yeah. age pension, and so they'll they'll make decisions. Oh, I'll I'll just get three, and then they'll make one meal last two days, or yeah. you know, two meals, and, and then their nutrition drops. Yeah, so that's you know, and drops. and as a society, if we've got um, poorly nourished older people, their quality of life's lower their health status is worse, they're more likely to fall, they're more likely to Mm. be presenting to hospital, they're more likely to be admitted to hospital and their recuperation period is going to be a lot longer and uh, and also they're more likely to need um, more support and care services than they would if they were better nourished. So so it's that preventative health stuff. I've never thought about it like that. That's brilliant. Yeah, so that's really our our mission. So the... um, so we've been campaigning for an increase in in funding. Uh, we think it could be as much as eighty million dollars a year for the federal government yeah, well to done. to do that adjustment. Um, we haven't got there yet. We've just had some um, uh, news from the Minister for uh, Senior Australians and Aging that uh, they're reviewing the pricing. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's somewhat optimistic. But they think they need another twelve months, and and um, many of our members nationally are really up against it. Um, We have also um, been able to uh, generate some specific funding for COVID costs. So a lot of Meals on Wheels services were hit really early in the um, COVID pandemic with extra demand and extra cost of service delivery. And um, we were able to achieve a $40 million boost for meal services 
um, during the pandemic, which has um, has certainly helped. Um, but of course, you know, most of us, and we, Mills and Wills SA, had um, you know, additional funding um, paid in in April and May. And uh, by the time we got to the 30th of June, that, that money had gone on doing the yeah, extra wow. work that we needed. It, was, it wasn't going to help us with our ongoing costs and it certainly, no. certainly yeah. we couldn't pass on any cost um, reductions to the consumers. Yeah. yeah. Such a purpose-led business. I mm. absolutely love it. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Have you always worked in non-for-profits? Is yes, yeah, so just love to learn how sure. you've uh, yeah. grown through the ranks. So I I graduated as an occupational therapist and um, my first role was in an organisation called Domiciliary Care. Um, and I was a, a, a clinician and a case manager. So really my career has been um, always in supporting older people and people with disabilities mm -hmm. to live as independently as possible at home. Um, so domiciliary care was a state government entity and so I was a public servant and mm -hmm. I was in in that role for, uh, well, I was working for domiciliary care for about 20 years yeah. uh, before I came to Mills on Wheels. So I, 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 I kind of described that I had three um, career stages. Yeah. So, so Occupational therapy was attractive to me because it was really practical. You could you could see um, that you know people were having some functional difficulty, mm. um, you know, living independently, living um, a good life, and and occupational therapy equipped me with skills uh, to be able to support you know to either compensate for um, function that people didn't have or to regain function that um, that they needed to right. to live the way that they wanted. The movement. I'm not quite sure why I gravitated towards um, home and community care and, and aged care, but um, it, it really resonated with me. I had, um, I had a stint as an uh, acute hospital um, uh, clinician and, and then as a manager of occupational therapy in, a, in an acute hospital and, um, and I discovered that, um, that that really wasn't for me, that the, um, it was a little bit to do with the um, working environment and the sort of um, politics is a bit of a pecking order in mm. in acute teaching hospitals mm, yeah. and allied health isn't at the top of that tree yeah, I, yeah. I don't know whether things have changed much um since then but no, uh, I don't believe but it has but it's no okay. and I and the other thing that I found about it was um certainly as a clinician that you you might have been um interacting with a patient for a couple of days at most maybe a week um and you'd be um working towards their discharge, but you wouldn't actually get to connect with them or understand mm. them as a person. And and working in domiciliary care uh, with a caseload of um, consumers, at one stage I was running a, a program for adults with disabilities long before we had the NDIS um, help, you know, helping to fund yeah. those kind of services. And But you were able to develop uh, a rapport and a relationship with people and you could really see over time the difference that your um, involvement was was having um, in in their quality of life, and so that really um, was was uh, a positive thing. Because I think what drives me that kind of you know what's my purpose? My purpose is positive impact, making a, a, a difference, and actually being able to see mm -hmm. you know um, I did this and that meant they they gained that. Yeah, you know, there was absolutely. a there was a benefit there. Um, so I had had this kind of um, three three ten year stages in in my career. So the first ten years was very much sort of clinical work, um, working around particularly in the northern suburbs of of Adelaide mm -hmm. as a as an occupational therapist, and then um, became um, 
really interested in in leadership and management as a career path rather than specialty um, clinical work. And one of the reasons for that is that um, in South Australia and particularly in the public service, there was a real ceiling on how far you could go as a specialist clinician. And you could, you know, you might have been the statewide expert on spinal cord injuries um, and there was a, you know, a, a, a level of mm-hmm. uh, classification that you could get to and then that was basically it. it. And th- there was one. And that goes with any industry yeah, though, really. Yeah. It? It, was, it was really, it was a very flat structure. Mm. And so the alternative was go out into private practice and, and that was a bit sort of risky and not something that I was keen to do. I was um, more interested in working in a public service because that's where many of the disadvantaged, yeah. most vulnerable, most disadvantaged people were. So I uh, started doing more in supervisory and leadership roles, did more training, um, you know, went and got educated about about management and leadership. And um, alongside that, around about the same time, um, my husband and I had a retail business. So we, um, we sort of, uh, we had a little bit of um, fun, funds behind us from a, um, an inheritance and, uh, and this was kind of his hobby that was yeah. going to... In what- Oh, so this was in the 1990s and uh, you might remember some little pieces of cardboard that had photos of um, sports people on them and yeah. they were, so was, um, like there was sports, card, sports like, cards. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, I've got folders and folders full of them. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> you would have possibly been one of our customers. So there we, you go. So we had, well um, so he had been interested in it um, uh, probably for a few years before it boomed in Australia and, and, uh, and we'd both worked in retail, so we kind of, oh, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll set up a shop. We know we know what we're doing, um, but we really didn't. Yeah. And uh, so we so we went into this um, into this business um, at at the top of a boom cycle, and within three years, it had absolutely bottomed out. Yeah. And we um, we managed to uh, leave the business um, without becoming bankrupt um, and paid, <laughs> like, paid off all of all our creditors yeah. and and right. uh, and all of that it took it took a bit of effort but um that was one um you know they say you sometimes your biggest lessons um, as a as a leader and and as a manager you learn from things that you did wrong oh, yeah, and absolutely. um and so for us the um that business and particularly for me as a leader was okay what did we get wrong we didn't have um, a, a business plan. We actually didn't even know what a business plan was. We, you know, cash flow forecast. It's a big entrepreneur, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> just a, figure it out as we go what's, along. What's cash flow forecasting? And <laughs> and um and then uh you know uh, pricing structures and things were kind of it was kind of interesting the way that um, people in South Australia in that business were sort of determining um, value and and what customers yeah. were, were determining as value. Um, getting good advisors. So we had um we had not particularly good business advisors. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a, an accountant was recommended to us <laughs> who, um, you know, did did do some small business things but really um, w- wasn't able to um, give us the advice that we yeah. needed or the service that we needed I at the time. I think that's such an underrated yeah. topic. Yeah. The so, team that you build around you. Yeah. There's a, a there's a fun, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Mm-hmm. I'll, 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 this is going off on a tangent. Oh, it's not really. It's explaining... He often gets his biography, uh, he often gets asked the question, well, you're a self-made man, how did you get to where you, you know, and his response is, I'm not a self-made man, I did it with the team. 
right? Mm. That's always his response. And my team was of the highest quality. Yeah. And so that's always something that sort of resonated with me uh, uh, about building a business, building a team. It's about the quality of people that you um, use to uh, to their experience and expertise yes. in their field. Yeah. Because you, you can't, as a leader, you cannot know it all. No, no. And we ju- we just, um, we didn't know what we didn't know, mm, you know. We, that's right. We, um, we just thought, oh, because you've worked in um, retail, you clearly you know how to run a retail business. But we, we didn't. We had to learn about marketing. We had to learn about contract management, um, employ, you know, industrial relations, Such employing people. Such a good people. foundation for yourself. Yeah, it was, to learn. it was so, mu- so much to learn. It was, no, it was no better scary. better way to yeah. learn and make mistakes. Yeah, the way it was really scary. So, we, so as that business was um, concluding, I'd... I'd um, Worked my way up in um, in in the public service. Can I just it. go back to the cards? Yeah. Sorry, oh, I'm yeah, asking sure. you a question. Yeah. Have you still got some of those cards? Because there's an influencer on uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the rest. His name's Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. Some people love him, some people don't. It is one of those things. But he's he's out there at the moment, right now in today's world, saying uh, baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards, whatever whatever mm-hmm. they are, the value of these are going to skyrocket. Uh, and he's saying it's a, it's almost another you know another ah, commodity. Well, so if we you've do. Got some, if we, you've got some I'm sure that we've got some uh, cartons and folders somewhere. There but, are yeah. people who will pay pristine dollar. You go on mm. eBay now, and the market's starting to rise. Oh, again. that's it's interesting. Quite, quite well, crazy. we might we might have to go and so dig some things go. out and have a little. Thanks for that. Tip. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. Nice I should tip. Have nice to, tip. Offered to buy more. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so so we had the business, and that sort of went up and went down. I I'd. Um, I'd had a goal that I was going to be a, a chief occupational therapist in a teaching hospital by the time I was 30 and I achieved that goal and realised that I just didn't like the working yeah. environment, didn't feel like home to me and luckily it was a, a temporary secondment and it was within the same um, health service structure that the domiciliary care was in. So yeah. I still had my substantive job in dom care and and I um, was you know still on the same payroll and all of that so it was pretty easy uh, when they advertised the chief IT job and I said I'm not applying it's not it's not for me I don't want to do it and I caught up with my um, other colleagues and I said can I come home <laughs> I just want to come back to my old job now that's what I want to do and and we were ready to start a family and yep. so I knew that I'd be able to get the work-life balance and flexible work yep. conditions in that in that job but we we were a really interesting um, public sector organisation because um, we changed the way that we operated, and there was a there was a government policy in the nineties um, called um, funder purchaser provider split, and um, there was a lot of new public management theories coming out. Jeff Kenner in Victoria yeah, was yeah. was at the forefront <laughs> yeah. of a, a lot of this stuff, and it was basically you know government steers it doesn't row, so government shouldn't necessarily be delivering services and and they did a whole lot of um competitive tendering and contracting out and and stuff like that so we restructured our organization so that um there was one part of the uh the service that was holding the funds and then there were service delivery units that operated as um fully funded um ring fenced business units we had one for allied health one for equipment and one for um care workers personal carers and at um, one stage or another, I led 
each one of those and some of them I, I led at the same time. So with a, a couple of other really um, dynamic women, um, in fact, one, one or two of them that I'm still working with now because I've brought them to my, oh, to my team at, at well, um, Mills keep, on Wheels. Keep, keep your great team we, together. We were able to set up an allied health business unit where we um, provided services to domiciliary care but also to other government-funded agencies. So if they needed a dietitian for one day a week, we could provide that or if they just needed an assessment done, mm -hmm. A speech pathologist could go out and assess yeah, yeah. someone swallowing. Um, we had, uh, you know, we sent a physiotherapist to Port Augusta um, and she used to do uh, three days a fortnight up at uh, Port Augusta and, and we had locum services and mm -hmm. things like that. So it was, it was really interesting. And we just grew, we grew the number of um, positions that we had. Um, we, we grew and in fact that... So you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, really. yeah. And that business unit still alive um so domiciliary care was taken over by um royal district nursing service yeah. rdns a year or so ago yeah, and they're still operating therapy solutions well which is the allied health business unit that we started so left a little bit of a legacy. about 25 years ago yeah, so yeah so job. that was that was pretty cool so i so it was a really safe way to be an entrepreneur i didn't have any skin in the game yeah. um i mean i i was um a permanent employee and we had staff who were on term contracts or other things mm -hmm. so it was you know I, I realized that if I didn't do my job well these people wouldn't have their jobs mm -hmm. um so I was pretty driven by that um and we we had a a, a, a another business unit to do home modifications and aids and equipment and so I ran that for quite a while and and um and that grew so that was sort of you know we had a merger and the um Metropolitan Domiciliary Care Services all became one organisation, and so then I became the um, manager of all the uh, of of all of the clinical services, all of the allied health services for the for the um, metro area. And this is a big, big organisation, about eight thousand clients, um, probably about three hundred staff. I think um, might, might have even been larger than that. And, uh, and and a fairly um, big budget as yeah. well. So I became a clinical lead. Then I became the general manager of client services. Then I became the executive director of domiciliary care, um, reporting to the chief executive of the, well the um, department who reported to the minister. So I was starting to do ministerial briefings and things. So what do you, just mm. on that, what do you mm. think was the the key characteristic to your growth in those roles like what, um, if you had to stand out above the, the rest to grow yeah what would be some of those key characteristics oh that you felt that's good? a really great question I think for me um so why you know there were it was competitive selection processes mm. all, all the time yeah, to, to yeah. get through there so why did I why did I get the gig and not somebody else i think was it, it behavioral was it, it was your behavior skills was it your technical skills i think what it was a you... bit of i think it was a bit of a a, a mix so one was um customer focus so actually yeah. understanding what was it what were the services we were delivering how did they need to deliver it and there's a there's a, a concept called clinical governance mm -hmm. um that's really important for quality and safety in in um in health and aged care and so i was quite strong on on that sort of um you know, professional development uh, across the, the spectrum of, of services that we were delivering. And then I think it was um, business now, actually yeah. applying um, sensible um, budgeting, costing, um, efficiency, 
uh, you know, at one stage I, I ran an efficiency drive um, which reduced our waiting lists by 20% or something yeah. like that. Um, you know, so there were those sorts of things which was in, in public service you have to always do more with less. And <laughs> yeah, so correct. I think I had some runs on the board for, for doing that. So you, you thought outside the square essentially yeah, and yeah. created new ways of working. Yeah, yeah. and I think too the um, – the interpersonal relationships. So I was known as being, uh, you know, somebody you could work with, yeah. um, somebody who would, um, you know, have have firm ideas, but um, but would adapt in the face of new information and yeah. you know be able to negotiate and and actually understand what's the what's the thing we're trying to achieve here what's what is important oh the important thing is that the people that we're trying to deliver a service to get the um the most people get the access to the most service in the most efficient way that and it's a professional service that's going to you know resolve their their problem yeah that was the most important thing and then everything else was just well how do how do we get there and how do you work with um, different teams of people to achieve that? So that so that was kind of, that was being, really being cool. a workable person, someone yeah. that you can work with, is such a, a foundational skill. Yeah. So, so the people that come to me and sit down, I'm looking, I'm looking to grow in my career. What what do I do? My what what's some of your advice? And it's my first piece of advice that I think I always give to people is. Learn how to work with people, mm. like care about people, understand people, show empathy, show and listen, learn and yeah. um, offer value to those people and then you'll start to see your career mm. automatically flourish. you just got to change your perspective of what I know and what I can deliver yeah. uh, to how do I serve. That's right. And and I think the other thing for me was um, seeking feedback. Um, mm. listening to advice, listen, you know, actually trying to adapt. So, uh, you know, often I'd, I'd have a, um, you know, a performance review or whatever yeah. and often I've, I would have actually asked to have it and I'd get some feedback and it might be, you know, 99% positive and there'd be that 1% that was, you know, they'd find something. Yeah. And so I'd just um, f- um, completely ignore the 99% yeah. positive stuff and just focus in on, oh, why did they think <laughs> that? And because there was a time when I was getting feedback that I wasn't actually um, demonstrating empathy and I was much too task focused and just sort of, um, you know, treading on people's feelings a a bit much. And so I really had to step back and go, oh, hang on, I don't think I'm that kind of a person at all, but how's that, how how am I behaving? How's that coming over? And what do I need to modify to sort of, you know, achieve the, the, that um, better rapport with people. Yeah. So yeah, so that was that was kind of interesting. So I got so I got to the top of the tree of um, domiciliary care. Couldn't go any further in um, in South Australia. Right at the time that the department was restructuring their executive director role. So I'd been acting in my my substantive um, tenured position was like four, maybe four pay grades, you know, below where I'd got to. Mm. And they did this restructure. And eight positions were going to become four and they had all these tenured uh, senior executives. So there was absolutely no job for me at that level. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't even a necessarily one at the, ne- the next level down, even though I demonstrated my, my ability to do that work. And um, and also I'd, I'd realised that the, the, cl- the closer I got to the, you know, the the decision maker because I always want to be at the decision making table. Yeah. That's that's the other thing for me. I want to have want to have influence. And um, 
but I kind of got there. And what I realised was my job had not had become a lot less about delivering quality services to the community of um, at that stage, Metropolitan Adelaide. And it was much more about keeping the minister's face off the front page of the advertiser. And that was not motivating. No. That didn't You're a purpose-led ins- person. Did not inspire me. And, in yeah. fact, I was starting to see some of the real strengths of the organisation that I'd been part of, you know, for nearly 20 years at that point. Um, those things were starting to be dismantled. And I just thought, I, I don't want to be the leader who has to um, disband this wonderful organisation that, that I've been part of building. So I started looking um, outside of, of government and uh, and I, I applied for a job at a council, didn't even get a um, shortlist on that, that one. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, and then I saw that the, um, the, the job at Meals on Wheels had come up and it was just a really um, beautiful alignment between my um, experience and knowledge and skill set and... and um, values and what um, Meals on Wheels was looking for, mm. what the Board of Meals on Wheels was looking for and what sort of organisation it was. So can you expand on that? I'm interested. Yeah. We do a lot of work with values yeah. and, and understanding that. It's, so, it's, an under, uh, it's something so that we often talk about but we don't actually really connect to. Yes. So um, so I've got, I guess, some of my core values, um, um, integrity, which you want every business person to, to have, but integrity is an absolute driver of me. Um, compassion. Um, so when you say yeah. integrity, yeah, it, can you expand on how? Do, what do you mean? How do you act? Sure. As a result of the. So, for me, integrity is absolutely the. It's just like the the bedrock. So, um, if I say I'll do it, I'll do it. It's so say what you mean, mean what you say, and behave according accordingly. Mm. So follow follow through on um, on what you're doing, but. Um, in intrinsically, it also means um, coming from a place where you're trying to get the best outcome. It's almost like do the greater good. Mm. Um, so not really trying to, um, you know, some decisions I make might not actually be the greatest thing for Sharon Brewer, but if it's the greatest thing for the organisation or the or the people who are um, being served by the organisation, then that's the right thing to do. Right. So it's it's sort of following an um, an ethical path. Um, but you know, for me, um, if somebody said, "Oh, yeah, you know, Sharon Brewer, if, if she says she, um, if she makes a commitment, um, you know, you know that she'll follow through on it. She doesn't welch on her deals. You know, she's yeah. she's um, she, so she's she's completely own, ethical. Yeah, yeah, you're creating your own brand. Yes, in the process. Yeah. yeah, integrity is something that is a core value of mine as well. Mm. And there's there's a there's an element of no matter how much you might benefit from a certain situation, the way I the way I explain it best is if I'm going to benefit from a situation, but someone is going to be affected by it in a negative way that they shouldn't be affected by it, then that's there's we no, don't go there. We don't go there. We don't mm. even think about it. It's, mm. And it's true to your core. And then yeah. even if you do make a decision that is uh, in the spur of the moment, and mm. you can, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. If there's something wrong and you go, no, 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 we need to. Well, we had an example um, um, just a couple of, oh, it was probably a month or two ago, um, we, we talked earlier about how um, we've been driving some extra funding for Meals yeah. on Wheels and, yeah, yeah. and that there was some more money on the table for COVID. And, and I'd put in an additional 
um, submission because Mills on Wheels SA being at the, the low end, um, we got double our funding, but double not very much is still not very, very much. Very much. <laughs> yeah. we, so we actually hadn't even got up to so, the yeah, national average. You go from one to two. Yeah. So, so I need I needed I knew <laughs> that we were um, spending money hand over fist trying to um, deliver a safe service, and and so I had to do this extra application, and the um, the format of it was a bit complicated. And so eventually I, I, I got a call from the um, Department of Health and they said, look, you know, we're looking at your um, application and, and we understand the need for the funding, but it's a really big ask. Um, so we think we'll probably be able to give you about 50% of what you've asked for. I'm like, okay. And they shot me through an email to, to talk about it. And, um, and they misread the um, spreadsheet that we'd sent through and they were offering us something like one point four million dollars more than wow. we actually, actually asked need, for. needed and, and yeah. asked for and I had so I had this you know I had this dilemma because I'm thinking this oh is... if we get that funding um the contract conditions are such that we probably won't need to give it back but also we don't need it um and so it was a no-brainer for me so mm. I kind of thought oh, I, have to, I have to tell them that yeah. they've made a mistake and um, and then I you know I checked in with a couple of board members. I said I just need you to know that I've um, I've told them that you know they've miscalculated and we don't need that extra funding. And um, so you know the contract's going to be for what we asked for, not 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 for what they thought we needed. And that's going to cost Mills on Wheels potentially you know over a million dollars. And they said no, you've done exactly what we yeah, wanted brilliant. you to do. That's that that that's why we hired you. Such a yeah. That's such a good story mm. in um, because if you're taking that, then it's effectively another organisation or not-for-profit or whatever that is missing out. Absolutely. So yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah. So I don't. I, so thank you. Yeah. For the community. Yeah. From, 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 the, from <laughs> the community. And you know, taxpayers. We're all ta well, taxpayers. We're all too. taxpayers. Yeah, we don't. We don't want money going there. So yeah, integrity is really a fundamental Imagine if they'd value. Uh, promised you the hundred percent. Oh yeah. Oh, that would have been. Yeah, that that would have been a bit awkward. Would have would have had to have had some challenges around how do we ma how do we actually manage that? Yeah. So. Um, but on the plus side, I would have said, well, the only way you know we'll be able to spend that is to cut the price to the consumers, which we'd really like to do. But we yeah. don't want to do it this year and have to jack it back up again next year because that's really unfair on on people as well. Absolutely. So, so um, yeah, so we so we I got to um, got to apply for the job at Meals on Wheels, and one of the things um, I'd, I'd known about Meals on Wheels um, because. There was in South Australia, if you um, for years and years, if you were an older person or a person with disability, and you wanted to live in your own home, um, generally there were three services um, who, if they clubbed together, um, could could provide you with a great level of support. And it was domiciliary care, district nurse, and Meals on Wheels. So um, Dom Care. So the three the three services didn't really tread in each other's patch, mm -hmm. but worked really well in in partnership. So I knew that um, Meals on Wheels was um, there to support people to live independently at home. So that's what had been driving me through my mm -hmm. career, really, really um, good fit there. Um, but a lot of things about Mills on Wheels were different. So it was my first non-profit um, organisation. Mm. It was my first CEO gig. It was the first time I was reporting directly to a board. And Mills on Wheels has a much uh, bigger geographic footprint and a bigger workforce and the predominant people in that workforce are volunteers and yeah. so that's a really different um a different environment to yeah. be to be uh working in but the um the 
the board knew that there was some changes coming up with um, the way that uh, different um, government programs were going to be constructed and they really wanted somebody who understood inside out how all of that stuff worked. Mm -hmm. Me coming from an organisation that had been funded through the same program and also having the, the connections and relationships in government which sort of made it a, a really good fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. So, well done. Thank you. That's an amazing journey. Mm. How have you found your time at Mills and Wheels? I guess, have you, I remember we've spoken previously and you said you've really grown and transformed. Mm. And mm. What is that? What does that growth and transformation look like? It's an interesting uh, thing because a lot of it's below the tip of the iceberg that you that you can it see. It always is. Yeah. It, right? So, so I came into an organisation that was, um, probably in a bit of a time warp um, in in terms of organisational capability and uh, and the way that we do things um, when in 19, what was it, two, when did I come, 2010 when I started, mm. we had um, a, a, an organisation that probably had a culture that was more like a 1980s, maybe early 1990s sort of culture. So it was... What, 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 what does that look like? Because there so, are still some cultures like that. Yeah. So, so some of the things that I observed was that we were a very volunteer-centric organisation. Mm -hmm. So we would make decisions based on what um, the volunteers believed was good and right for the volunteers rather than what was good and right for the people that we were serving. So an example of that was that we provided a one-size-fits-all service for everybody, mm -hmm. um, which was very convenient and efficient for us. Everybody got the same thing. They um, went through the same customer journey. They paid the same price. Um, they got no choice about what they were eating on any given day. Um, and that was okay because, you know, through the good graces of the volunteers who um, decided what was going to be on the menu and we would cook what was in within the capability of the group of the volunteers who set, were yeah. there at the day. Yep. So that was um, – and we um, we had situations where um, volunteers would ban some um, staff, a very small number of staff would be banned from going to their uh, – to those um, branch sites because – the manager or the staff member might have been imposing the organisational policy on that group of volunteers and they didn't like the policy, so they would just um, uh, not do it. They, they would refuse and not only would they refuse, but they'd also send the um, staff member away with their tail between their legs and, yeah. and so the, the organisation... The 1980s. Yeah, is, the yeah. organisation yeah. just, just, just um, enabled that and, yeah. and allowed that to happen. Um and, and so some of the things that um, made that challenging for me were, were um, it didn't feel like we were heading in the, in the right direction. Right. We weren't being responsive to the community. We'd, had, we'd been in decline. We'd had a, um, a reduction in service activity by that stage. Our peak, we were probably delivering about 5,000 meals a day at our peak and I think we were down to 4,500 by then. Um, wow. Might have even been a little bit less. So there'd been this decline. And um, nobody could really put their finger on, you know, what, why? Why is it that we um, that there's more older people living at home and surely there's more need than um, – but all of a sudden we're going backwards. We're, we're, we're losing um, uh, customers. And it was all about the fact that we 
just left the car. We, we just assumed that there would always be more demand than we could possibly meet. Yeah. And uh, so it didn't really matter so if we didn't treat people with respect. So what I'm hearing is the organisation forgot its purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think they did. Um, even though there were, you know, the purpose was documented, you know, we're the people that are. Yeah, but we're not are, living to it. No. Mm. Um, and. And so we started losing relevance mm. um, in the community, and we'd actually stopped talking to the community. We did we didn't promote ourselves. We didn't remind people that we were here. So complacency. We just uh, became, we became comfortable. We did. Yeah, we had the was it the three C's of failure: complacency, conservatism, and conceit. Yeah. We had all of them. There you go. Yeah, it's amazing that you would have able to come in, see that straight away. Did you? Is that? One of your first things that you yeah I did I I um I started out um d- doing I didn't I didn't deliberately come in with my first one hundred days plan but um when I came there was no documented strategic plan and and um so I spent probably the first three months um visiting people talking to people going out and visiting uh, consumers and really trying to understand the organisation and some you know there were some things that we had that were that were good mm-hmm. and there were some things that we had that were were really weak and um and one of the things that i discovered probably took me a little bit longer than i'm i'm, I'm almost embarrassed at how long it took me to realize that i didn't have the right team around me mm. and um and then it so it probably took me 12 months to realize that i didn't have the right team around me and then it took another and then i then i spent a year trying to develop them into the team they needed to be and that wasn't falling on fertile ground and then it probably took me another year or 18 months to um, restructure so that I could um, create the team that that I needed. So, um, and this organisation's, you know, we have operated on the sniff of an oily rag. So, so um, I'd say the the organisation itself had this um, value of um, frugality Mm, that we would... um, Everything would be done at the lowest possible cost, so that the person receiving the food paid the the lowest possible amount for mm. for that service. And I, kind of affordability is really important in Absolutely. in food security. But what it meant was that we we undercut ourselves. We yeah. we actually didn't have the right um, uh, level of support for the volunteers um, to be able to do their work well, and we were becoming more and more and more reliant on volunteers to run our local operations and some of them you know 25 30 40 hours a week as a volunteer basically managing a a local service outlet and the um, compliance and regulatory obligations were building and and uh, and we just didn't have enough support you know behind these people and the amount of risk that we were carrying as an organization you know risk of um, a food safety incident or other, yeah. uh, or a work health and safety Potential incident. Potential compromising yeah, by, was, by the frugality. It, yeah. was re- it was really challenging. So we needed to sort of try and restructure our um, cost uh, structure. We needed to re- restructure our um, leadership structure. We needed to bring in some more um, people, in, uh, you know, to, to be able to support volunteers. So it's been... Over the 10 years, it's been probably three strategic planning cycles which have... Um, just kept building the foundations so that, um, you know, by this year we are more adaptable and more agile and better able to innovate and to implement um, change than we were the year before and the year the before, before that and the year before that. So, yeah. We, as you know, do a lot of work in the culture space. Mm. 
a common misconception is that culture can be changed quickly. I will do a 12 month program or something like that. And uh, then it, it, we will then be fine. Right. Yeah. There's a common belief, not so much from the senior, mm. the, the really high exec senior leadership team. They're, they've probably got a little bit more understanding, but from the lower rung, it's like, I want to build a team. I want to put some effort into my people. I want to grow my people, but you know, we've only got enough for six months, three months, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And then that's it. That's all I'm yeah. going to do. And it often falls away. Mm. Right? There's a really good improvement for that first three to six months. And then from there, it goes back to the way they've always sort of worked. Yeah. So your journey over 10 years and mm-hmm. growing and stepping each stage is really fundamental to the, the, the message, I guess, we're trying to promote is that culture is a journey. It is. It's not a, it's not a one-stop shop where you can go pull something off the shelf and then all yeah. of a sudden it improves. And when, and when you come in to an established business or an established organisation, there's an established culture. Mm. So not many of us are blessed with a startup where you can actually create the culture that you believe you need Correct. from, from yeah. you know, day one. So whether you're coming into a team as a team member or a team leader, you, you know, that that team already has its culture and you might think, well, to be successful we need to, to shift the culture and you can put some effort into doing that. But your team's not working in a vacuum either. So mm. there's the whole rest of the organisation that's kind of impacting on on that and um and so we and and so I came in and kind of discovered I didn't have one culture I had you know 83 cultures because every branch had had its own culture and then we had two paid work sites and each of them had their own culture and within the paid workforce the different sort of divisional units had their own culture and there would be these you know the the um interdepartmental rub that mm-hmm. you tend to get um yep. and people people talk about oh you know we've got silos here and then um the very people who were complaining about the silos were the ones who were perpetuating yeah. the, because you know there was actually um intrinsically something in it for them yeah. to be a, a silo oh you know we'll just we'll just work the way that we want in our section and everybody yeah. else can dance benefits, to our tune benefits me yeah yeah what was your approach to uh, breaking down those silos and going from 83 different types of cultures to mm. one? How, what was your method, I guess? Or- so we've got um, – I'd have, I'd have to say um, there's not such a stark difference in cultures between our um, branches now than what there was. But a lot of it came back to um, fundamental – under, uh, you know, making sure people understood our founding purpose, our vision, our mission, mm-hmm. our values as an organisation. Work, working with um, the volunteers and the staff to actually identify well, what are our values? What are, what are the things that we're living now? Um, what are the things that have made us successful and got us to here? And then, you know, what do we need to preserve and take forward? But what can we then bring into that? So so one of the things that I did was um, not try and impose a completely new culture on, on people. And um, I, um, I'm, I actively um, am not ageist. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, there, 
our workforce is um, the the median age is seventy years old. Yeah. And so, so they're set um, in their ways. So <laughs> yes, so so people have, people have had a fair amount of time to yeah, um, to decide how they're comfortable with where they're at. Yeah, don't really want to change too much. That's at right. this Point in their life. And some people had worked in um, in their working life in in very different um, workplace cultures mm. than what we would consider as an appropriate culture. Yeah. Now you know, um, bullying was was um, you know accepted. I, I think we'd have to say in many areas and so some some people didn't know how to behave differently so we sort of start we started with the the values um you know understood the good stuff about what what we were doing and there's a lot of good stuff mm. and then tried to bring in some of the the new um beliefs and then link that back to behavior and had that clear in um procedures codes of conduct and then managed to that so um uh you know, previously at Meals on Wheels, there might have been conflict or inappropriate behaviour and blind eyes would be turned or it would be sort of just swept under the rug. And when I came, there was a big lump in the middle of the rug that hmm. kind of need, needed to be, um, <laughs> that I, I, I got landed with. Um, and so I I, uh, I took a um, really deliberate approach that um, think. Let's be clear about the behaviours that we we want. Let's um, encourage that. But if we see what's not acceptable, we don't sweep it under the rug. Mm. We we deal with mm. it, and uh, and that's meant that we have um, we've moved some people on um, yeah. who yeah. couldn't adapt to the appropriate behaviours of the workplace. There's a quote yeah. that I, I I quote often on the show, mm. and it's something that keeps coming up. But the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. Yeah, it's the it's such a foundational uh, quote that I live to yes and we and we um we we use that quite frequently in in our leadership group um because when you get busy and when you've got a large um geographically dispersed uh organization it's actually you know sometimes it's just easier to let sleeping dogs lie but Mm -hmm. the more that you you do that the bigger problem that you're going to have down the track so yeah we've you know we've had some stouches with with people um I've had you know, groups of volunteers uh, threatened to um, resign. In fact, I think we had one um, only last month. It was a, a committee of a branch who um, had been holding out and, and sort of still wanting to do their own thing and, and we needed to um, implement some change and, and bring them into um, uh, uniform sort of policies and procedures that all of the other um, branches were working under largely for risk management mm. and customer services reasons and they um and and they weren't happy about that and so they all resigned and um you know a few years ago people would have seen that was going to be the, the the death knell the end of the world of mm. meals on wheels there were others who would say if a paid person comes in and coordinates our activities we're all leaving um we've gradually had more paid people out in the trenches supporting the volunteers and they've really loved it and not nobody's quit over yeah. over that um but i've had yeah. a, i've had a few country branches threaten to hand the keys back to the to the kitchen because they didn't like a a decision that we'd made and and i just am saying um the days are gone that we don't make the right decision for the organization and the customers um because a few volunteers aren't comfortable yeah. with that so you know either, so you live to your values yeah so you live it, to your purpose you um, I I know that some people won't be able to adapt, and that's fine. And we thank okay. and 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 we work to give them a dignified exit. Yeah. So um, you know, we, 
they're, they're volunteers. They're here because yeah, absolutely. of their... You're allowed to have a difference of opinion. Yeah, and they, they're here because of their commitment and dedication and whatever. But if they, if they just find that, I don't think that's, you know, I can't work in that um, new way. It's I, I don't agree with it. Well, you know, then sometimes, sadly, they've mm. needed to move. But happily, most have actually stayed. Um, you know, we, right. we had to implement um, uh, police screening, um, that was a really long and drawn out um, process, and we did we did have quite a bit of resistance to that. And even still, um, you know, volunteers are finding the three yearly renewals. Uh, mm. It's you know, it's a lot of paperwork, and um, but unfortunately, that's not something Mills on Wheels has had a choice in. And I, I guess that's another way that I've helped to change the culture is be really clear about there are some things that aren't negotiable, not because the CEO says it's not negotiable or the board says it's not negotiable because it's in legislation or mm. it's in regular, you know, we can't, we can't compromise on food safety. We can't compromise on work health and safety. We no. can't compromise on um, the safety of the vulnerable people that we deliver services to. But I give people that I, um, the understanding of, but we can discuss how. So the what might not be negotiable but the how yeah. often is and yeah. so I've um, a few of our change initiatives I've actually got um, you know task forces um, of the people that are going to need to live with the change mm -hmm. develop you know let's test some things out let's pilot it in certain areas let's iron out the kinks um, you know I, I, um, I implemented uh, a choice of um, uh, dishes on the on the menu and I said you know the, the I, I set the um, the goal which was you know, we, we will offer people a choice of their um, main course. Um, that's that's the goal. Um, but you'll work out how we'll do that with the least um, burden for our volunteers who are who are going to need to now prepare two um, dishes and that there's menus that have to be issued and brought back and collated mm -hmm. and, you know, so mm -hmm. extra admin work that's required. Yep. Um, but you, you guys are the experts at how to yeah. do that. So you figure out the best way to do it. But the result, but the um, outcome is going to happen. Yeah. And uh, and it took us a while, but we got there. So that was really cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. How um how was the rise of like Uber Eats and that sort of how have you has it impacted the business at all? Um, those um delivered meal options don't seem to have has had as much impact as uh, the flourishing of convenient meals in supermarkets and oh, on, yeah, online true, shopping. Yeah. So um, so what we find, um, I think because Uber Eats, Menulog, Delivery, those um, those business models, you, you've got to be able to afford the um, – the food that oh, it's you, expensive. you're ordering. Yeah. yeah. So for I ordered a, a McDonald's meal with my, my two kids. I got a mm. eight and a six year old and it was $25. Yeah. For, well, I've never spent $25 on McDonald's in my life. Oh, it's crazy. Mm. So, um, so that's the sort of, you know, for our, um, for, for the demographic that we serve, um, those things would be a very occasional special yeah, trait. And, absolutely. and, and in fact, prior to them, you could, ring up your Chinese takeaway or your yeah, Thai true. takeaway yeah, or delivery, whatever. Yeah. And, and a lot of those small businesses did deliver and pizza's been delivered for years. Yeah, and yeah. So some, you know, some, I know some of our consumers so there's, actually there's do that. There's an abundance of, of a, yeah. in, the, in the market. There's people who yeah. need food. Yeah. Right? So, so we, it's a hierarchy of needs. <laughs> um, and one of the pluses about those business models that we don't have is you, you actually, it's um, order on demand. So 
um, you get to choose what the food, exactly what food you're going to get. And you know that it'll be delivered within, you know, maybe 45 minutes of mm. you ordering. Um, whereas with Meals on Wheels, um, we, we are um, constrained by needing to um, deliver them. The meals need to be at a certain temperature when we deliver them to maintain food safety um, yeah, standards. Okay. And, and we're kind of geared up to do a lunchtime um, meal delivery. And so people need to be at home to receive the, mm. the food unless... With um, delivering them frozen meals, you know, once or twice a week. So, um, but yeah, we ha we haven't seen as much of an um, impact from the delivered meal um, services as we have with uh, the um, the large um, organisation, the large businesses that are that are targeting um, people for for health reasons or other reasons. Say we can, you know, you go online, um, you can order these um, products from our website, choose what you want to eat. Um, minimum orders often apply mm -hmm. and they'll get delivered uh, to the to the door. And we're seeing that families are seeing that as a solution for their older yeah. relatives. And that's a real concern for us because the uh, a lot of these businesses came out of the um, weight loss industry mm. and um, and most of the products that they have, even though they're saying they're, they're, they're tailored for older people, they just don't have the protein yeah, and energy yeah. Um, and calcium and other sort of things that that the Meals on Wheels products do. So, um, and the other thing that I say about those kind of services, if you're having frozen meals delivered, or if you're doing online shopping, you've got to have the um, cognitive capability to actually um, use the internet or have somebody do that with you and sort of work out how how many things do I need to order. Mm. And what, you know, you can probably figure out what food you like to eat and there's nice pictures and things like that. So yeah. you, so, and you've got to have a way of paying for that. Yeah. So your order comes, it gets dropped off on your porch and you might be 91 years old and you've got a foam box, which is, you know, five to 10 kilos in weight that you've got to get off your porch and bring inside. So you bring it inside and then you've got to unpack it into your freezer and hopefully you've got enough room in your freezer, in your little fridge that you're running to yeah. put these things in. Um, and you've got to manage the use-by dates and stuff yeah. like that. And then um, that's great. So you've got food in your house. Then you've got to remember that it's meal time, yeah. that you've got food and that you can heat it and how to heat it. And a lot of the people that we support, that chain of of um, capability is bro is broken yeah. at different points in the chain. And so we, um, we're, we're there not just to be um, – delivering the food of course that's a really key part yeah, of our, of our role you help them out we yeah so we're bringing we're bringing the food ready to eat to their home um it's a sensory invitation to eat so they get the smell of the food and that reminds them that it is actually lunchtime they should eat that food now and um, the volunteers who are delivering make sure that um that person's okay you know that they um haven't got a big um, bruise or a graze and it yeah. turns out that they had a fall and nobody knew. Even just the human, yeah, the yeah. human connection yeah. pieces. Yeah. And our volunteers save lives. You yeah, know, probably nearly every day there'd be somebody who who didn't answer the door that we uh, were expecting to see and um, the volunteers, you know, raised the alarm um, that, that somebody wasn't there and it's quite frequent that um, we need to get the ambulance out to somebody and yeah, wow. so it's that. That, um, that human contact, that human connection that you get with a Meals on Wheels service model that um, internationally has been shown that um, 
yes, the nutritional outcomes are better for people getting Meals on Wheels, but the um, psychosocial outcomes are better as well. Mm. So people feel less anxious about living alone. They feel, um, you know, that that they're more connected, they're less lonely. So there's a whole lot of, you know, great data about um, the benefits of Meals on Wheels compared to alternatives. Such an amazing service. So... 2020, 2020 has been a tough year for all bushfires, pandemics, everything you can think of. Mm. How have you you guys coped and handled through this? I mean, especially with the volunteers and you say your volunteers are an aging demographic as well. Given the COVID virus tends to target or have more an effect on the elderly, elder generation. Mm. How have you guys sort of handled your way through that? Well, I'll touch on the bushfires. Um, we we had one of our branches in the Adelaide Hills that um, was right in the thick of it with the um, the bushfires and I don't even think they missed a day of delivery. They were oh, able wow. to, um, to continue on um, despite people's, you know, having fire at their own properties and, and, and so on. So unfortunately um, we, we weren't... Um, impacted uh, badly by the fires in uh, South Australia. Um, but COVID was uh, uh, has been a whole other um, can of worms. So the thing about COVID is that it's a disease that targets the very people who we deliver services to. Yeah, and um, many of the people who um, are our workforce are also highly uh, susceptible to that. And so we needed to be right on top of it. We... we, we um, we're uh, following news and health department warnings and international sort of experience um, probably a, f- a few weeks ahead of um, many uh, organisations. I, w- I would say the, um, the hospital sector and emergency departments and others would have been right on top of it from January or, or so on. But we, late February, early March, we were really planning ahead, you know, what's going to happen when this hits. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so we needed to uh, to innovate at pace. Uh, we had uh, a whole lot of things. We needed to change our service model. We needed to have uh, so um, what uh, we we were really worried about losing up to half of our um, workers. Yeah. Uh, we needed to have um, safe systems and safe processes for our uh, for the for the delivery of meals. So we kind of had we had a. Um, we have an emergency management team. We brought the emergency management team together. We met daily for uh, a long time. And But right at the outset, we, we said, what, what are our key objectives? Everyone gets fed, no one gets sick, and we don't go broke doing it. Mm-hmm. So that was, so we kind of yeah. knew exactly w- what we were trying to do. We already had an emergency management plan that kicked in. Um, we've, this wasn't the first crisis that we'd had to um, deal with. Most of our other ones were food safety related and only mm-hmm. impacted on us as an organisation, not the whole planet. Yeah, but, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, this time was was bigger. So, um, so with those, uh, faced with those challenges, what we decided to do was to convert from primarily delivering a hot meal um, on a daily basis to delivering frozen meals twice a week to mm-hmm. people. Um, and we focused on the Adelaide metropolitan area. So our country towns are served, um, usually the local public hospital will be preparing the meals mm-hmm. and and um, they all confirmed that they had the capacity to continue doing it and the volunteers all confirmed that, you know, that, that there were enough people to keep those services going. So we didn't, um, we didn't change up 
what we were doing in country towns much at all. But in the um, metropolitan area and and um, Mount Gambier, a couple of the, the larger towns where we've got a Mills on Wheels kitchen, we needed to um, fairly swiftly uh, change to, to frozen meal production. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily sound like a really big shift, except that our internal production capability was out, was mm. offline, uh, because we were just about to move into, into an, our beautiful, beautiful new building, yeah. our new purpose-built um, cultural facility and uh, corporate offices. So we did not have the internal capability to do uh, the frozen meal production, and we needed three thousand a day, um, wow. so fifteen thousand a week, which is a really large production run. Um, interstate supply chains were breaking down or just the, the lag time wasn't, yeah. wasn't going to work for us. And um, so we were, really, we were trying to problem solve through this and my phone rang and it was the um, general manager at the convention centre and we have a relationship with them. And they said, look, we've got all these um, people that have got no work and a lot of, and I don't even know where the job keeper was um, announced at that point. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, the, their team wasn't eligible for JobKeeper because they're a state government um, entity. Mm-hmm. And so they said, look, we, we, we'd love to help you. Is there anything that we can do? And I'd been and looked through their kitchens um, late last year and and I knew that they did cook chill, that their model of um, food production was cook chill production and that their setup was big enough and and uh, that they'd get the food safety um uh, you know, seal of approval from the Department of Health fairly um, quickly. Yeah. And so we we went into partnership with the Convention Centre and Food Bank. Um, so the Convention Centre did the prep, uh, the preparation of the food and Food Bank did the logistics and warehousing and, um, and we, we needed to do that for about eight weeks until we were able to start producing food at our Hilton well facility. Done. So it was – and it was um, – much more expensive as a um, as a supply chain than what we would normally yeah. have yeah. because we were substituting volunteer labour with um, with paid uh, you know the yeah. conventions and yeah. it was was paying people their their usual wage. Um, so and we had some some other costs that we wouldn't normally have incurred around you know pa- uh, cartons and and pallets and all that sort but of. But it stuff. comes back to the simple fact of what you stand for as a mm. business and it's to make sure that these people. Getting the food that they need. Yes, yeah, and so and and knowing that it was going to cost more was um, also you know at exactly the same time as we set we're setting up these um, new systems and processes and and of course you know contactless delivery procedures and oh. sanitizing and and working from home and a whole bunch of other things. Would have been going a few sleepless it. nights in there. Yeah, it was it was pretty <laughs> full on. Um, and but. Uh, also working closely with the the federal um, Department of Health mm. about um, we, we're going to need some extra money to get through this mm-hmm. and uh, and to their credit they were really quick off the mark as well and uh, with announcements and and so on so we we um, we managed to get through it we had a, a really good team uh, working together and I think because we were reasonably well drilled I mean we had holes in our business continuity plan I, I you know I won't guild that you know there were things that we we all do yeah there was a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that we did on the fly a lot of assumptions that we had that didn't hold up and uh you know now they've been thoroughly tested and so we did a lot of iterative um rapid problem solving and i was really um impressed with with how it went and in you know touching back on the culture side of things 
uh, I don't think we had any resistance. We had to push through some change uh, at the branch level. Um, we'd been operating two um, customer customer relationship management systems, and we said we we can't, we cannot service two systems while we've got an emergency mm. going. We need to push these last few um, through. And we were also making some changes to the um, financial management system, pushed a lot of those through. Um, so that was um, helpful to, mm -hmm. to us to do that. And uh, and we got to test our um, existing consumers' acceptance of um, frozen products as opposed to hot products. And that's been a kind of interesting thing because in the eastern states primarily, or particularly New South Wales and Victoria, most meals are delivered um, chilled or frozen and the consumer heats them up as they require yeah. them. Uh, whereas um, we're, we're much, we're sort of 20% frozen, 80% hot and they're the other way around. Yeah, and, right. and I'd always kind of wondered, you know, what, why that was and how much of that was organisation driven and how much of it was consumer driven. And so what we have found is that there are some pockets where some consumers have gone, oh, actually the frozen meal um, service w works better for me and yeah. they've stuck with it. And there's a lot more who said, I could not wait to get back onto back the, on the yeah. hot meal deliveries. And but at least yeah. now you've got that, those op those two options. Yeah. That's actually helped you yeah. diversify and, your product. And we kept our volunteers engaged. So while some volunteers did stay home for health re reasons, we wanted to keep them engaged. And we weren't able to do so much um, human connection with yeah. the, the people we were delivering meals to because in the end we were literally leaving the meal on a piece of furniture outside their front door, talk to them through the front door and then we'd go and they'd come out and, mm. and pick their meal up. Um, so we we engaged with a bunch of our volunteers to start making phone calls. So rather than them visiting these um, people no, that they, they knew in their community, they would make a phone call. And the, vo and the consumers really liked it because it wasn't a stranger ringing, mm. ringing to see how they were doing. It was someone that they knew. So, yeah, so that fantastic. was another positive. Beautiful. Well mm. done. Thank Thanks. you. Now, I'm conscious of time and your time, especially because you've got uh, some meetings coming up after. Just to wrap it up, I'd like to ask a little bit of a few quick fire questions. To sure. See. They're a bit, they're strange questions. Okay. But they're, uh, they're ones that I like to ask. A lot, a lot of the podcast is about, we talk a lot about books and, uh -huh. and educating ourselves and yes. growth and development. And, yes. and we've stepped through some of your, yep. through what your ways of thinking. Yeah. What is one of your favorite books that that you would turn to from a personal development perspective and or uh, even just from a fictional oh okay um so fictional stuff would probably be something like the power of one by bryce courtney yeah. um that kind of um genre i yeah. also love the lord of the rings and oh, yeah. you know some of that yeah. some of the those fantasy, um, stuff. fantasy stuff from a um you know personal development business development um some of the stuff um patrick lencioni's um five dysfunctions of a yeah, team amazing, is yeah. and there's another one that he wrote um which i can't remember I think it's called the edge or something. The motive. But yeah, yeah. The, the motive, so yeah, well, that, yeah well, there's a few. He's got so many. That, so good. All that was good. Things. And um, design a better business, um, okay. which is using design thinking to um, stimulate innovation in organisations. That's a, that's a really good one as well. And another one um, which is called um, uh, for per profit for purpose, or for purpose, and it was written uh, by the former head of Hammond Care. Okay. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but that's yeah. a that's a really good book for um, non-profit leaders. Yeah, great. Yeah. All right, we'll put them in the notes. Mm. 
is there one that you've sort of recommended and 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 gifted to people more often than not? Yes, there is, and I just can't remember the name of the one that I that I have been gifting to people. I could go to my bookshelf and find and it, but I I reckon it was one of the Lencioni okay. books that yeah, that I had, and um, and one that I give to people when they retire was um, Alexander McCall Smith. Um, um, the number one ladies detective agency. <laughs> That's oh, there you just, go. Yeah. just for something to read for pure joy and relaxation. Yeah. Um, Alexander McCall Smith's um, work is terrific. Brilliant. Mm. So, what do you do for uh, relaxation or to to recharge? Um, I read. I walk. Um, walk in nature. Um, yeah. Binge on Netflix. Yeah. Um, do Great. do a bit of cooking. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. If you had one superpower, <laughs> what would it be? Ah, oh, the superpower. <laughs> um, crikey. Ah, uh, what, what would my super? What would I want it to be? This is such a. I was watching X Men with my oh, kids last night. Yeah. And um, teleportation was high on their list. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, actually, I think something like that to help me manage my time would be <laughs> yeah. would be um, would be quite terrific yeah, to be. Um, to be able to. Um, in fact, I've got a time turner well, from the Harry Potter movies. One of oh, yeah. um, my assistant gave me a time turner, but we just haven't quite worked out how to get it to work <laughs> yet. But yeah, oh, having, would love that. having having the ability to um, to be in two places at once oh, um, and uh, you know be you know doing. Doing more that would be that would be pretty cool. I had a conversation mm. with Michelle, and this is supposed to be rapid fire questions. They never rapid fire. <laughs> Michelle and I, you know Michelle yes. Holland. So Michelle and I had the conversation yesterday. It's just that there's not enough time to read all the books or do no, all the things that you, no. you want to do. Like there's no, so the, many classics that I haven't read or even delved into. No, or, and the one book that I really want to, I'm I'm reading Julia Gillard's biography at I the moment, and she's just released a new <clears> book on women's leadership, mm-hmm. which I want to look at. And the other one I want to read is um, Simon Sinek's *The Infinite Game*. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, so I'm looking yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. I've been I've, I adopt the audio book, mm-hmm. so I have an audio book going. I have a normal book going, and then I've like four or five years. Yeah, cool. And one last one: if you had access to a time machine, mm-hmm. where would you go? Oh, I think I'd go back in yeah. time, and I'm not sure. I kind of I really like. Um, the um, Regency era, era, um, and I don't. I think as a woman, that's probably a really bad time yeah. to go. It's a really bad time to go back to, but I, I kind of like that. Um, but I also think, um, you know, Australia in the nineteen fifties, you know, w- where there was just there just seemed to be so much opportunity, and mm. and there was a lot of um, so, sort of through the fifties, sixties, and seventies, so much social reform in Australia. So yeah, I think I think probably I'd. If I had the TARDIS, I'd probably yeah. want to go yeah, back rather than forward. Rather yeah, than and forward. maybe meet maybe meet some, you know, really um, powerful historic characters. Yeah, that, you know, h- who've shaped our world. Yeah, that would be great. It's such an interesting topic because mm. I always think about going back and meeting mm. those greats, mm. but then also, what am I? not going to see yes like yeah. oh no, I'm, I'm annoyed that i'm only going to live so many years and not be able to see what what carries on into the future so yeah, yeah. you only had one choice though i guess yeah yeah beautiful thank you very much for your time That's my it's pleasure. been an amazing conversation really great hearing about your journey mm. really it's uh, and, and your thought process on 
on culture and leadership and, and, and like and how businesses you believe should run and mm, your thanks, connection Daniel. and purpose. So thank you very much. Yeah. It's been, been great having you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump onto the Synergy IQ Facebook page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.